0: The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. These are the last words of David in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and we have laid them upon these opening chapters of kings because it seems fitting. There's a truth embedded in those verses. As the king goes, well, so goes the kingdom. When we come to the book of 1 Kings and that first chapter, we become alarmed. We find David old, and cold. Even the beautiful Abishag cannot get his blood going, flowing. She can't get his temperature up to 103. He's not hot-blooded. He's cold. He's dying. And so we are met with that question that hangs over the first chapter, who will be king? Turns out not to be the good-looking and well-connected Adonijah, but Solomon. Still, Adonijah lives, and that calls into question whether or not Solomon's kingdom will be established. And that's the question that's over top of chapter 2. Will his kingdom be established? And as we followed his reign, we, we saw that Solomon called the Punisher, Benaiah to eliminate his political opponents and those who had wronged David. And so we read at the conclusion of chapter 2, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So who will be king? Solomon? Will Solomon's kingdom be established? Yes. But when we come to chapter 3, we're confronted with yet another question, and it's this, what kind of king will Solomon be? Remember, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Will Solomon be be wise and good and just, or will he be wicked? This is a question, which at this point in our reading, is open-ended. It's it's not clear based on Solomon's actions. If we look over over chapter 2 and see how he carried out justice, question mark, it becomes clear that that he is not a black and white sort of figure. He is, as we've said, Solomon the Gray. There are are good things about him and about his rule and his reign to this point, but there are also some some very concerning things. The author skillfully throughout the book scatters these these seeds of disaster. And we watch them, them germinate throughout the story until they come into full bloom and Solomon's heart is turned away from the Lord. We have a few of those seeds at the beginning of chapter 3, remember? We see Solomon take to himself a foreign wife in order to align himself with a foreign power, all the while offering sacrifices at foreign places. These are harbingers of things to come. Yet it's not all bad at the beginning of chapter 3. After all, Solomon is given that honorific that is bestowed upon no one else under the Old Covenant. Verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. Loved the Lord. It is high, that is high praise. We see God come to him despite his imperfections and his inconsistencies. And he says, what shall I give to you? And Solomon asks for a listening heart. A hearing heart. That is, an obedient heart. Right? When, I, when I ask my kids, hey, listen to me. Why aren't you listening to me? Right? I'm saying, why aren't you obeying me? Or if I tell them, I want you to listen to me, it's not that I just want them to hear my words and keep doing what they're doing. I want them to be obedient. Solomon's asking for a listening heart, a hearing heart, an obedient heart, a heart that is conformed to the mind and will of God. It's important for us to remember that the heart in the Bible is the place where both intellect and affections are hidden. The Bible doesn't distinguish between head and heart like we might. In the Bible, the heart is where the head or the mind is located. You'll notice Solomon asks for a listening heart, not so that he might feel. He says, God, give me a listening heart so I might feel feel really good now he asked for a listening heart verse 9 so that he might govern the people might think and discern between good and evil so he might exercise wisdom this request pleases the lord And when we left off last time, you know, previously at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, we left Solomon worshiping not at Gibeon in one of those high places, but in Jerusalem where he ought to be before the Lord his God. And so now the author shifts his attention this morning, and he's going to give us two proofs or two exhibits of the fact that Solomon has received this wisdom. Proof number one which we're actually going to do second because that's just how I've organized it, is this case between two prostitutes. And proof number two, which we're going to treat first, are all the blessings that mark Solomon's kingdom. Indeed, Solomon has received wisdom, and as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Solomon is a wise king. And the wise king brings blessing. That's our main idea this morning. The wise king brings blessing. And I I want to encourage you, in light of this wonderful truth, to follow the way of the king. The way of true wisdom. The way of Christ. Outline is there before you. We'll pray, and we'll get started this morning. Father, we come before you this morning hungry and thirsty. Pray that you would fill our bellies with the bread of life. That you would quench our thirst with the living water that flows from Christ. Pray that you would shine in our hearts once more the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the light of the world. We ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit now that that we might hear you. We pray for your Spirit now to draw us closer to your presence and closer to one another as we worship together this morning. Speak, Lord, your people listen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me. 1 Kings chapter 4. We're going to do verse 1 and then verse 7 for reasons that I will explain shortly. Verse 1, chapter 4, 1 Kings. King Solomon was king over all Israel. The united country at this point. King over all Israel. And these were his high officials. And here we're going to have a list of names that we're not going to read. You can read them later if you like. But they amount to Solomon's cabinet members or in his inner circle. So you see Solomon's cabinet there. And then we come to verse 7. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. Then we have another list of names which you are welcome to read this afternoon. But between these two verses, verse 1 and verse 7, we see that Solomon is committed to squeezing the devil out of the details. We're given the, given the names of his inner cabinet, and we're given the names of these regional administrators, which he had set up in 12 districts, basically so he could tax them to provide food for his royal table. Right? They're in charge, each of these administrators, for providing food to the king's court one month a year. Why are 12 of them? Solomon, we learn, is wise. And it doesn't come to us in chapter 4 in in some flashy kind of in-your-face way. It comes to us in a way that's ordinary. Maybe even kind of boring. Love what Dale Davis writes, God's gift of wisdom extends to the ordering of life and affairs. There is a a wideness in biblical wisdom. It is not only concerned with the moral and accurate judgment, but also with efficient and orderly structure that keeps chaos and waste from running life. Organization and administration matter. They're expressions of wisdom. And I say that as someone who often loathes administration and organization. Chelsea is constantly asking me about my calendar, and I'm like, I don't know, woman. I'm just going to live and let live. But if you live that way, life gets in the way. And you become subject to the tyranny of the urgent rather than committed to that which is important. Structure and planning and administration enable us to grow. This is true for us as individuals, for us in community with one another in friendships, for families, and for churches. I mean, think about it. Let's say uh, I want to, it's that, it was just New Year's not that long ago, right, January. Let's say uh, my New Year's resolution is going to be I'm going to shed a few pounds, I'm going to get jacked and tan, and, and I'm going to start doing, doing things right from a health standpoint. And so I go, you know what, I've got, I've got my tanning bed appointments scheduled, uh, I've, got, I've got my gym membership, I'm going go to go to Planet Fitness, I'm uh, going to just only bench, you know, every day is chest day. Uh, we're going to eat right. We're going to have some kale. Not going fast food restaurants anymore. No more ice cream at night. Going to skip the delicious lattes in the morning. We're, we're getting after it. Here's the plan. Here's the diet. Here's my grocery list. My wife's going to make sure she doesn't buy any bad food for me. We're getting after it. I might be pretty successful. But if I make the same commitment, you know, I'm going to be jacked and tan in 2022, and I make no plan just kind of have this idea in my mind that I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to get around to it, right? It'll just happen. I'm far less likely to succeed. Planning, wise planning, precedes healthy growth. Planning is instrumental to flourishing. This applies not just to someone's Physical life, though bodily training is of some value, Paul says. But it applies specifically, in my mind this morning, to our spiritual lives. And often we are guilty of expecting our maturity in Christ to just sort of happen. I'm not going to schedule a, a quiet time with the Lord or time to pray. And then I'm going to wonder. Why God feels so distant. Organization helps us to grow spiritually. So so how is your spiritual life ordered? Are you just expecting spiritual growth to happen all on its own? Organization is important to our our friendships. We we have to actually plan to spend time with other people plan to have spiritual conversations with our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether uh, over coffee, or at lunch, or while you're folding laundry, or or even at dinner. We have got to be intentional about planning for spiritual interactions with one another, because if we don't, life gets in the way, and that which is urgent dominates our days those conversations that are centered on Christ well they never happen relationships take planning and this goes to our families as well parents if you if you think that your children are just going to magically be discipled in the nurture and admonition of the Lord without your planning and deliberate actions in those directions i, I think you're wrong If we want our children to know and love Jesus, the most important thing that we can do, according to all the studies, isn't to put them in youth group. It's not even to connect them with other older adults in the faith, though that is typically more effective. The most effective thing you can do is to talk about and live out your faith in a real way every single day of the week and to make the Lord's Day an immovable priority in your life. That's what the studies say going to church on Sunday and then living out your faith the rest of the week. Plan to disciple your children. Worship together on the Lord's Day. Do family devotions. I'm not saying you have to do it every night. Try just, just one night. Make it a priority. to Talk about Christ in your homes. Be deliberate about creating a culture of grace in your house. Because if you're not, well, that culture of grace won't just show up. And other things will will squeeze the oxygen out of the spiritual life in your family. Home will be dominated by politics or Netflix. (laughs) Any and everything else. What does what your schedule say about what is important to your family? Is your family slave to the urgent? Or have you planned to serve Christ and to give yourselves to that which is most important? Structure is also very important in the life and soul of a church. Of course, uh, I don't think structure has ever saved anyone or changed anyone's heart. M- maybe. I don't think so. But, but church structure is important. There's a, a wonderful book, you can pick it up if you're that type, called The Trellis and the Vine. And, and the illustration is basically, uh, you, know, you all know what a trellis is, I assume. Um, if not, you can Google it later. But basically, like a structure, it holds a vine. And if you have enough strel- trellis, the vine can, can grow along it and get bigger and flourish. So the idea is that with church structure, we want to have the right structures that are reflective of the Bible so that the life, the people in the church, the vine, can, can grow and can flourish. That's why we've given ourselves over the past years of transitioning to having a plurality of elders and to setting up deacons and to um, having better structure in general, talking about things like meaningful membership and, and church discipline. All of these things help contribute to the healthy growth of Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. Administration and organization may seem boring, they're very important to our health and our well-being. Some of you maybe have leafed through 1 Corinthians 12 and Paul lists those spiritual gifts and among them is administration. It's one of them. I know, it's shocking. Shocking. But it's there. And maybe you've thought in the past, What a lame gift I have. I want to tell you, it might seem small to you, but it is important to God. It is essential to the growth and well-being of the body of Christ. It's a pretty good gift. Not one that I, I have. Solomon, in his wisdom, has planned and organized Israel in a very deliberate way, and to the end of great success. Success that we can see just by turning our attention to his table. His table. Look with me at verse 22 of chapter 4. Solomon's provision for one day was 36 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 pasture-fed cattle. A hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. This is quite the grocery list. Imagine Solomon, whoever's in charge of his stuff, coming back from Costco with a truckload. He's got all the stuff. I mean, the, the dude has seven different kinds of meat on his table every day. I mean, I'm happy if I can just get some pastrami. He's got seven different kinds of meats. But the author is drawing our attention to saying, this is how much God has blessed the kingdom under Solomon's wise rule. Do you see how opulent and how incredible his food is? This is how much God has blessed the kingdom. The author wants us to see how magnificent things are under Solomon's reign. Because the wise king brings blessing. And as the king goes, so the kingdom goes. So there is, even amidst this glowing portrayal of Solomon, which we'll return to in just a moment, there is one of these seeds of disaster. Look with me at verse 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. This is ominous. Why is it, it, I mean, yes, the horse shows his power and his majesty, how successful he's been, but why would I say this is ominous? Well, it's because, you know, we've been reading Deuteronomy 17 a lot together. Allow me to turn your attention to Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. This is instructions that are written to the king of Israel. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. This takes our mind back to Egypt, right? He's put his trust in a foreign power. He's taken to himself a foreign wife. He did some worshiping in foreign places, which he will later on when he returns to idolatry and his heart's turned away from the Lord. And now we see there are many horses being gathered to Solomon. These seeds are also like ticking time bombs that won't go off until chapter 11. Or to see that even amidst Israel's great glory, under the one who will become her wisest king, sin is still present. Sin is still growing. As good as things are, sin is still finding a way. It should be a warning to us, especially when things are very, very good in our lives. and We think, man, I have it all together sure that's what Solomon thought. And then all of a sudden, one day, after one poor decision that didn't seem that big of a deal, and then another that didn't seem that big of a deal, we wake up and we will find that our hearts have turned away from the Lord. And we need to return to Him again. We must not sleep on sin, or it will slowly strangle us to death while we lie there. Examine yourselves. Find sin and kill it. That's what John Owen said be killing sin or it will be killing you. You must kill sin. Indeed, the horses are supposed to help us recognize that Israel is enjoying her glory days under the reign of Solomon. But the author, in here, he, he wants us to hear the voice of Bruce Springsteen, that these glory days, they will pass by in the wink of a young girl's eye. And we'll see that soon as the story unfolds. But right now, the focus and the attention is indeed on the glory in Israel. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom Solomon's administration is wise. It's led to incredible blessing everywhere. His table is full of fruit and food, seven kinds of meat and wheat and all the rest. And indeed, the rest of the kingdom is flourishing also. Look at verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Other kingdoms, the Gentiles coming and paying tribute to Solomon. Solomon's provision for one day, we read that part, verse 24. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. How good are things under Solomon? Well, the people are enjoying blessing even beyond what God had promised to Abraham. The borders of Israel have swelled beyond what was promised. The people have become as many as the sand by the sea, as many as the stars in the sky. They have been faithful to be fruitful and to multiply. God is keeping His Word. They are inhabiting the land, and it is almost literally flowing with milk and honey. And we see they have peace on all sides. They have land, seed, blessing, Peace. All of these things are coming to fruition in the life of Solomon, who starts to look a little bit like Adam. It's really interesting. It's almost as if Solomon is bringing Eden back to the people, or rather, the people back into Eden. He's going to build a temple, which is the meeting place between heaven and earth, and in just the next few chapters where people come once more into the immediate presence of God. This word dominion in verse 24, is the same word that's used of Adam when he's told to have dominion over the earth. And like Adam, Solomon knows about all living things. You see this in verse 32 and 33. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop, a small plant that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and birds and of reptiles and of fish. But we're supposed to get this picture that under Solomon, things are becoming Eden like. We start to ask and wonder that question Is Solomon that one who was promised back in Genesis 3? Is he the one who will crush? The head of the serpent. Bring peace between God and his people once for all. Things are really, really good. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Solomon is blessing the people. The wise king brings blessings. And the people we can imagine are singing under Solomon to God, Great is thy faithfulness. Blessings all mine and ten thousand beside. Solomon's wise rule brings blessing to Israel and to the nation. See that in the passages we just read, but as well uh, in verse 34. The people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom. Friends, we, we might not be kings, but we can learn from this text. Everything that God has given to us is to be stewarded to the end of building up the church and bringing blessing to the nations. Well, how do we bring blessing to the nations? By taking the wisdom of God to them so that they might come to the wise king. By being obedient to Matthew 28 when Jesus says, "Make disciples of all nations." teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit I'm with you to the end of the age. And Jesus has promised us that He would be with us until the time of His return, and He's given us marching orders to build up the church in discipleship and to go out and to make disciples. We have the wisdom of God. We have Christ that which is able to make people wise unto salvation. We are to tell of our great and glorious King so that indeed all nations might be blessed and come under his reign. What kind of king will Solomon be? Wise. He will bring blessing. And just. He was a just king. Look back with me at verse 16 of chapter 3. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. This is a little surprising. Right? Solomon praying to God, asks for a listening heart, worshiping in Jerusalem, and then the next line, two prostitutes before the king. This strikes us as odd. Especially in light of the Bible's uniform condemnation of such a profession. Why are these two women allowed to go into the presence of the king? I think it's because of the king's character. Solomon cares about these women. He cares enough to hear their case and to pursue justice for them. He loves the Lord, and therefore he loves those who are made in God's image. He believes these women are worthy of dignity, honor, respect, and justice. church, we ought to do likewise and care for all kinds of sinners, from the smallest of sinners to the greatest of sinners, and especially to those who have fallen victim to the sexual revolution and the culture of death in our country. As a church, we ought to be a refuge, a place of healing for those who have been beaten up because of their belief in the lies that they have been told from the time they are young children, about the freedom of unfettered sexuality, individualism. You must welcome and care for these people. love them. Solomon cares for these two women. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. And the one said, My Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. They probably live in a brothel together. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. And we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept, and laid him at her breast. And laid her dead. Son. And I, for one, can't help but think of how Jesus interacted with sinners, ate with tax sinners, and hung out with with prostitutes. The story that's most vivid in my mind is from Luke chapter 7. If you remember the story at all, there, there is a woman of the city who was a sinner, was a circumlocution for prostitute. And Jesus is eating dinner at a Pharisee's house. The Pharisee's name is Simon. And, and they're just enjoying a meal together. And this woman comes to Jesus and she begins to kiss His feet and wet his feet with her tears, and dry his feet with her hair, and anoint his feet with oil. And Simon basically says to to Jesus, if you knew that it was a harlot who was doing these things to you, you would not let her touch you. To which Jesus responds in verse 40 of Luke chapter 7, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will he love more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. This woman comes to Jesus, obviously desperate, feeling as if her whole life has been lived in the darkness. She's a woman of the night after all. And I would guess it probably seems to her that her whole life is filled with guilt and shame. She can't even look at Jesus in the eye to ask Him for forgiveness. And yet she comes and she bows down at His feet and she weeps before Him, expressing her love to Him. And though her sins are great, mercy of Jesus is more. Non-Christian, If you are here, I want you to know that Jesus forgives sins. And He doesn't forgive them because your sins aren't really that bad. Now, your sins are wretched. They are worthy of God's eternal wrath. In fact, your sins earn hell for you. That's what you deserve. And Jesus forgives you God forgives you, not because he doesn't care about justice, but because the justice and the wrath due to the sins of all who will trust in Christ was poured out on Christ, on the cross. This is the great gospel that we Christians believe. Hell on the cross so that we could have heaven. Friend, that salvation can be your salvation. Jesus' blood can clean anyone who will take shelter beneath it. Come, wash yourself in the blood of the Lamb. Trust in Christ. Maybe it feels like your life is full of guilt and shame and nothing but darkness. You can't find a way out, but friend, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Indeed, a light has dawned. A ruler has come who is the second Adam, who really does bring of God everlasting, who really will restore His people to a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is the King who dawns on His people like the morning light, like sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Jesus is like rain that makes grass to sprout forth from the earth. You can have your sins forgiven if you will come and bow down at the feet of Jesus in faith. He delights to forgive. Jesus is a just king like Solomon. He cares for the lowly. From the smallest of sinners to the greatest of sinners. And Jesus is the wise king. And we saw that in verse 34 of chapter 4. The people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. But friends, Jesus is better than Solomon." Listen to his words in Matthew 12:42. "The queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn." For she came the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is the something greater than Solomon. Jesus will never turn away from his people. Jesus is the forever king sitting upon the throne of David, ruling and reigning right now. Jesus is the king whose kingdom is spreading across the globe. Jesus is the king who gives peace to his people now. Jesus is the king who gives us every spiritual blessing and 10,000 besides. He is the king who has defeated death. Jesus is the king who holds the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the king who calls his people out of the grave and unto eternal life. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom, and so go his people. As he lives, so too shall we who trust in him live. Jesus is the wise king who brings everlasting life and blessing to all the nations, and he does so through the foolishness of the cross. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it is this power of God, this wisdom of God that we proclaim to our loved ones and to our neighbors because we believe that this King is worthy of worship and praise and song and prayers and being listened to. The wise King brings us blessing. Friends, we want to follow this King. Follow the way of this wise King. Give Him your worship. He's given us everything. And so we worship Him together, not just through song and prayer, preaching. But we worship Him this morning this is the table this is the meal that we celebrate his victory over sin and death and to anticipate his return so let us eat it and drink and be happy for our king is wise and he is risen Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word made flesh, Christ our Lord, who gave his life as a ransom for all of us who were enslaved to sin. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit by whom you change our hearts. Give us listening hearts so that we might believe and conform ourselves to your will. We confess that like Solomon, we have lived inconsistent lives. We confess that many of us have dark pasts and dark moments. We come once more this morning before you